I'm David Matson, and this is Primetime 89. A chance for me to visit and talk story, check in and catch up with classmates from a generation ago, finding out how they're doing, where they are, how they got there, and what experiences they've had along the way. Recording in progress. Kaipo. So how you been? I good. I'm good. You know. So how's the weather been out there? Hot. Yeah. Where are you located in California? In Glendale. Glendale. Which is not too it's not too far from LA. It's like twenty minutes to to anything fun in LA, like West Hollywood. So how's life been for you living out there in Glendale, Kaipo? Uh, it's good. So that was a move from from where? New York City, from Manhattan. From Manhattan. Yeah, I was in Manhattan from uh, May '93 till wow. till August 2019. Okay, so that's twenty six twenty six years. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. what prompted the move from New York to LA? So, I have a son, and when he graduated high school in 2019. We knew he was going to be an actor and we were looking at actor conservatories, which is what I did all day long. Your classes are based on anything in the theater. So you you start with theater history and then you do a a movement class. Then you do a a voice and speech class. Then you do an acting class. Then you do clown class. It could be fencing class. It could be, um, you know, fight combat, mask work. I mean, the whole day is basically that. And is there any mime classes? There are mime classes, yeah. Or is that like, like would it fall in the category of movement? Yeah, yeah. So so your movement class might have techniques like uh, Feldenkrais or Alexander, all these techniques about like sort of opening up your body or about like how to play old, old age, how to be more sort of fluid with your body movements. And that's kind of what what movement class. And so no matter what it was, and then every semester you would it would change. So your movement would be clowning or your movement would be fight combat and all that kind of stuff. In my acting career, things have like taken off since I've been here myself. It's, a, it's cool, I like it so far. And it's closer to Hawaii, so. That's a huge plus. You know, where did you grow up? I grew up pretty much my early years in Aiea, Pearl City, New, Newtown to be specific. Mm-hmm. And then around fifth or sixth grade, we moved to Nu'uanu, and then we moved to Pa'oa Valley. So from seventh grade to, to senior year, it was, yeah. I, I lived in Pa'oa. Where in Pa'oa? Because I'm, that's, that's like my stomping ground. Sorry. Oh, it is? Oh, Booth Road. Um, there's Pacific Chop Suey, and then there was a gas station, a Shell gas station, and yeah. a small Chevron. So if you go Booth Road, there's a fork in the road going up to Pacific Heights. Yeah. I would go straight down to the valley, about, yeah. I don't know, maybe 200 yards, and my... My house was there. That's where I grew up from 7th through 12th grade. When people ask me, like, where I'm from, I say Pau'oa rather than Aia, but I probably spent more years in Aia and Newtown from, like, a baby until, like, you know, 6th grade or whatever. I like to think of myself as, like, a homebody. Like, I liked being at home. 
I liked watching TV, watching movies, reading comics, making Lego. Like I didn't know how to swim until maybe I was like 14, 15, even after like five or six years of Kamehameha School's PE swim class. I tried to get through as much as possible and I never really felt comfortable swimming. I would wear shoes and socks and long pants to these places. Like I'd see my cousins and some of my you know family members barefoot and you know, they're, I was like, no way, man. No, I'm just too, too highly fied. I'm too, like, it's not, not my thing. And so I stayed home a lot. If I was to do anything, it was performing. It was boy choir. It was um, concert glee. It was um, drama programs. It was speech and debate. Like th those are the kinds of things that I like left my house to do. Still to this day, we're really close family. But you know, my mom and dad divorced when I was a kid. So I think I was maybe six or seven. Okay. And so for a number of years, it was sort of shared custody and, and living with my dad here, living with my mom here, and, and just sort of trying to figure out that. So as a kid, wherever I was, as long as I was like, I had my toys, I had my comics, I had my Legos, like I was, I was good. Mm -hmm. Were there any um, things that, that you guys would typically do like for Christmas or anything like that? Or for the holidays um. we always did something together and um and it was typically me or my sister who were doing a lot more of like performing stuff you know my sister was in concert glee for three years i was in concert glee for three years mm -hmm. doing boy choir stuff and so if there was a christmas concert that's what we did for christmas like mm -hmm. that was our sort of christmas tradition my family's on mostly on oahu and molokai how much time have you spent on Molokai? Uh, quite a bit when I was a kid. Yeah, because my, my grandfather lived there while my grandmother lived on Honolulu. So yeah. I have cousins who are around the same age. And so we would play with them. And what I was a city city cousin, you know, they were a country cousin. And yeah. every time I go there, I'm like, oh, it's a little it's a little spooky. Like if the if the Menehunis were going to be coming out, they were going to be coming out on, on Molokai. You know, if I was going to hear Night Marchers, it was going to be somewhere on Molokai. So as a kid, I was I was always like kind of uh, like very intrigued about it, but also scared crap. <laughs> scared yeah, the crap yeah. out of me. Molokai is a special place. During medical school, I went there twice mm. to, to Kalau Papa. So, we so did I. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, it, we, I went for deputation team in high school. Now, for a time, they weren't allowing any kids to go down there. And I thought, oh, I thought leprosy wasn't contagious. And I thought they had got that. And I said, no, it's because they haven't seen children in so long that it feels it, it might bring back, it might be too traumatic for them to see young kids. Wow. I was like, wow, okay. So I think at the time, we had to be like 16 or something like that. So when we went with Kahukaupu, I felt like, oh my God, this is it's pretty am amazing. I cannot really explain how there are certain smells or um, music or being in a certain place where like somehow uh, a Hawaiian spirit takes over in my body and I feel emotional. I feel like deeply connected and deeply rooted. And I don't know how to explain that kind of thing other than saying it's like it's, it's mana filled. Yeah. yeah, so us. So I'm one of five. Me and my siblings, we all went to Kamehameha. So oh all of them, all five. So my sister is a class of 87. Yes. Then there's me. I have a, my other brother, Kavika. Mm -hmm. He's a class of 93. Okay. Then my other brother, Kekoa, he's class of 98. 
And then my youngest sister, Ashley, she's class of 03. I was the first of my siblings to go to Kamehameha because I fourth grade, I got in. My whole family's like connected to Kamehameha yeah. schools, very oh. like, and my sister Pua works up at, um, my other sister, Ashley, my grandma, she would pick us up at the terminal after school. She would drive us to Central Union Church. Yeah. Because she was there waiting for us to finish, she got involved with the uniform. So I would take the Kamehameha Schools bus. I want to say like this fifth, sixth, seventh. Who was on that bus, man? It was like Chrissy Noka, uh, <laughs> Willie Wright. You know, we'd, I would hang out with those guys. I think Nagamine, Scott Sato were, were on that bus with us. It was awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I did that for like a year or two. And then when we moved to Paoa, we were so close. And then my mom started working up at the schools when I was in maybe eighth grade. She got a job for a switch or the switchboard operator uh, okay. up at the school. And so she would drive us to school and it was easy. You know, that was nice. it. And then she moved up to um, the high school where she was a support staff in Mr. Ramos's office. I don't know if you remember, but we actually performed for a period when we were younger. Yeah, Honolulu Boy Choir, right? Oh, there you go. You remember. Awesome. Sure do. I was like, I remember, I think David was in Honolulu Boy Choir for a little bit. Yeah, it was the whole puberty thing and, and the voice started changing and I was like, I can't hold a note. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I was a lifer because I went from fourth through eighth grade, I think it was, or at least... It felt like I was in there for a while. I think you'd be in the front row or something like that when they were doing those television, you know, segments or something like that were, yeah. were, were you know, showcased. But. but I do remember very, very clearly a moment where my life changed a bit and it had mm -hmm. to do with, with a boy choir. Doug Mossman had come in mm -hmm. at the end of our, one of our rehearsal sessions and he said, Jim Neighbors is going to come we need a couple of kids to perform with him. And so I said, oh, that sounds like fun. And I, I want to go raise my hand. And I went there. I was really sort of sad. And I was, they had picked like a number of other kids or whatever. And I was rejected or whatever. And so my dad had picked me up that day from rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, yeah, well, I thought I wanted to do this thing, but I, I didn't get it. You know, I didn't get chosen. And he says, what? Oh. Forget about that. And he, went, and he went over there and he talked to Doug Mossman. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I don't know, I guess Doug sort of was persuaded. He's like, well, okay, all right. Yeah, Kaipo, come back and yeah, come, come on in and, and come up here. And we were doing this song, whatever it was, doodly doodle, doodly do, Merry Christmas to you yeah, from Honolulu. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I was over there and I was doing that like, you know, like the, what the Honolulu Boy Choir did, like sure. the bobbleheads, you know, like, woo. Yeah, yeah, big smile and, all of Yeah, and I remember Doug Mossman going, oh, yeah, yeah, well, hey, everybody, whatever, what Kaipo was doing, I, I want it like that. Like, everybody do what Kaipo was doing, right? And um, I felt good. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And on the day of the shoot, I guess one of the directors or whatever said, oh, um, where's that kid uh, who was uh, doing this, who was singing and whatever like that? Yeah. I want you to come over here and you're going to grab Mr. Neighbor's hand and you're going to bring him to this thing. It was tiny, tiniest, littlest, smallest thing. Yeah. But I was like, first time in front of like cameras and, and I was like, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I had such a good time performing that I was like, I could do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, for sure.
So you've been in LA for about two years now. You know, what are some of the things that you've got your hands in? And, you know, were any of those things that, you know, were in the works prior to moving from New York or? You know, I, I had a podcast for a bit when I was in New York, when I started. Okay. Um, and uh, it was fun, but it was audio only. And it was called The Actor's Hustle. And it was like talking with actors about like, what do you do in between jobs? Yeah. It's the hustle of like, how do you keep active? How do you keep your kind of stuff going yeah. um, when you're not actually acting? Mm -hmm. And so that, that was what that podcast was about. So when I left New York, I had The Wedding Company. Mm -hmm. And we had about, I think, 25 weddings that were on the schedule. So I knew that at some point I would have to fly back and forth from L.A. for most of them. I did have um, staff in New York who could handle some of it, but um, they didn't drive. So anything that was outside of the city or anything that was like in White Plains or Connecticut or Rhode Island or whatever, I would have to fly up there and do it or or hire somebody from, you know, oh, that. So I knew that when I moved here, I would have to be going back and forth for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And September, October of 2019, I stayed with my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, mm -hmm. who is in Long Island so that I didn't have to fly back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I was planning on doing that for some of the 2020 weddings that I had, and that was gonna be it. And then of course, once the pandemic hit, everything stopped. Everything in 2020 weddings all had to move. They moved to 2021, 22. I was like, okay, so I have to go back and forth to finish all these things. Mm -hmm. From an acting perspective, I didn't have anything here. I didn't even have agents here. My, all my agents and representation was in New York. Mm -hmm. So when I moved here, I knew that um, I still had one foot in New York, one foot here, and I had to wait until I was completely here sure. and finished with my weddings before I could really in, indulge in it. And then I ended up getting representation here. They ended up sending me out. Then I started booking some things. Lately, I've been in the dubbing world. So when there's a, a Chinese or Korean, Japanese movie on Netflix, for example, I will dub in and do the English voices. So if you click on a movie and you click English to hear it dubbed, you might hear my voice as one of the characters. And so they do that here and I love it. Because, you know, when we were kids, we grew up and we, we'd watch like Hong Kong films and, yeah. hey, you, what are you doing? Hey, you come over here, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm that guy. I get to be that guy. And the funny thing is it only takes me an hour or two hours. That's the session and oh. I'm done. I like to act like the process of acting so typically if there's a you know a commercial for chase or or you know there's a a nickelodeon cartoon or something like that like i'm game i'm game to try it i'm game to to doing it to auditioning for it i mean i i have things that i prefer to do but there are times when i just go oh, i just like i like doing it like i've i've done maybe 22 or 23 audiobooks mm -hmm. um and I love doing those because essentially I'm sitting in a, in a booth, sometimes with or without an engineer, mm -hmm. and I am reading the book. I am narrating the book. There's nobody else around me. There's nobody to direct me. There's no, there's no other person to play off of. I am essentially creating characters from the book 
using whatever the author has given me and I sort of try to perform it as if somebody is listening to the fourth to the first time can mm -hmm. totally get involved and they see it yeah that's kind of like the most fun I have I'll, I'll do a lot of audiobooks for Native American languages and I don't I don't know anything about the Lakota or the you know Apache or any of that kind of stuff yeah. but the language for some reason when I'm reading it it, it feels extremely similar to the Hawaiian stuff. So what are some of the things that you're doing out there in, in California then? I am pretty much a 100% full-time actor here in LA. Okay. When we moved here, I was very adamant about going, all right, I wanna redirect all my energies into my thing career. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, I have representation that sends me out a ton and then it's just a matter of like auditioning, self-taping, making sure like I'm ready. I'm yeah. ready when they want to put me in something. And so thankfully they have. And then, you know, voiceovers and audiobooks are also like to me, I consider all that acting stuff. Performing in front of a live audience versus doing it in front of a camera for a movie is, is a huge, huge leap yeah. difference. It, and it I'm is. Wondering. It's actually really difficult for me personally to switch gears from theater to film and television. In fact, for many of my years in New York, I concentrated primarily on theater because that's how I was trained. Mm -hmm. And then in maybe the early 2000s, I started sort of investigating being, um, being more of a film and television style actor. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard for me to go back to the stage after I had worked so, you know, a number of years in film and television technique. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the primary differences is volume, you know, like essentially a, a film actor can be like this and they can talk this slow and they don't have to do much and just sort of like feel it inside. While no one's going to see that on a stage. So if anything, you have to be a little bit more intense, a little bit more to to sort of get it out there to the back of the house that something is going on with me. While, yeah, yeah. On, while on film, I just let the camera do all the work. A friend of mine once said, it's like, think about it like if you're at a party mm -hmm. and you see, uh, you see a pretty girl across the way that you wanna get her attention. And so you start talking a little bit louder, you start being a little bit more uh, sort of uh, having some suave affair, savoir faire or whatever sure, like that. Sure. And that's theatrical. That's theatrical, right? Yeah. But in the film world, if you really like that girl, you just look at her a little bit and you just sort of think, and you sort of, you don't, you don't do too much. You just sort of let her come to you. And it's sort of like that kind of idea. So you let the camera do all the work in, in, in film and television. But, you know, I mean, I've been an actor since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, when I sort of jumped into the professional career of it, you know, once I got out of college, things came a little bit easier to me mm -hmm. um, in terms of film and television. Like for some reason they just popped in and maybe it was because I was a young person of color in the nineties. They didn't have a lot of us out, out there. Um, and so I started booking some things. I started, you know, I, I, um, my wife and I started a theater company. Uh, I, I learned directing, we learned producing. Like I wanted to get my hands in so many other things other than just acting. Uh, and then as, you know, prices started to fall for cameras, 
you know, in the early 2000s. And I was like, oh, my, my wife got me a camera and said, oh, you know, maybe you can learn how to do like film and television now that you have a camera. And that led me into shooting weddings. And so I ran a wedding production company for still do for 20 years because I was able to like capture other people's um, the romance, the food, the culture, the like storylines of it. And I really loved it. And so I've shot maybe 600 weddings, but as a, um, but as an actor, I started like seeing things from behind the camera and that helped me get better in front of it. I've been on like, big projects, multi-million dollar. <laughs> in the case of, a, I did a Netflix movie that clearly is going to be a $200 million film. Whoa. And it's with, you know, big directors and, and big actors. And like, you don't want to be the guy that messes up. You don't, you know, you want to know your lines. You want to know what's happening in the scene. You want to be um, adaptable in case mm -hmm. a director throws you something in a different way or you're just not familiar with what's going on and you have to like fake it that mm -hmm. you know what you're doing. Um, and then you're working with other people too. So you don't want to, I don't want to mess up the sound guy or the cameraman. I don't, you know, like it's, you get a little stressed out about that stuff. And then there's other times where, you know, it feels so comfortable uh, and everybody's feeling so cool that it doesn't feel like you're acting at all. You're just having a conversation and that's the goal, you know? Was there any of your teachers who really left an impression on you? Abe Mokunui, who is Kim Mokunui's uh, older brother, he was my speech coach. And so my freshman through senior year, I mean, all, all four years of it, he was my, my coach, my mentor, my very good friend. I mean, with his tutelage, training and whatever, I became the actor who I am today. I mean, very easily. As, as a young aspiring actor growing up and wanting to be a performer, yeah. you need somebody who is hard on you in a loving way. And, and he was, and to this day, we, we still talk and whatnot and, and we're still close, but um, that's definitely in a huge influence to my life. And then um, I had three drama teachers at Kamehameha. One was um, Jim Bertino who retired uh, after my sophomore year. And then we have John Marks. And then my third year was the first year of Paul Palmore, who ended up being at Commitment for a decade or so after that, after I had graduated. But those three guys, each of them, I learned something about craft, about being a better actor. It wasn't just performing. You, you had to do other things. There was a deeper meaning behind it. And um, that set me up for success in college and beyond, you know, so also was a huge influence to me, um, Dr. Chan. Uh -huh. It was always a, a very easy rapport with him because I would see him all the time. When I was in Boston University, I, he had sent us an email saying, oh, I'm coming up to Boston, inviting all the alumni in, in Kamehameha, just touching base. It was like every time we saw them, it always like brought back some fond memories. And, and Dr. Chan was always one of those people who I revered. I loved the fact it's giving back. So to me, it's very influential and it's something that I try to strive for about like, how can I give back to my community? Even if I'm not living there, mm -hmm. you know, how do I do it? In what way? The fact that when I was in New York, the theater company that my wife and I founded was called Imua. 
and I did it for 20 some odd years, we would do free film courses, free um, acting on film courses that anybody could sign up for. Anybody could come over. We did it at our house and they would come over. We would have snacks. We would work for four to six hours on this. We would film it. We would show it. And, and they learned how to do film acting. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that we tried to do to try to open up our house, our family, community, to build something that was, that helped people, you know? And it was important that 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 occurred. And because I was a young guy doing it, for me, it was an outreach support. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's as, as really as meaningful as it was. I wish it was bigger. I wish there were larger things, but you know, when it comes down to finances, when it comes down to time, it was really hard to do in Manhattan. So the fact that I did it for 20 years is pretty, like, that's a huge chunk of my life, yeah. Yeah, but over that period, you must have had a lot of people come through and you must have made a difference for a lot of young, you know, aspiring actors. Are, are I hope there, I did. Well, I think that that falls perfectly in line with Pawahi's intent and something that, that would make Dr. Chun very proud. I, I know that he was very proud and he always asked about that. And so when, when you mentioned the... Uh, reunions. I've only been back for one, and that was amazing. And so I've gone some 2025, the 30th one, right? Mm -hmm. I did not have any desire or attraction to going back to do the reunions for the first couple of years, the first couple times they did it. And I would always be too busy in in June to go home. And I said, oh, you know, at the 20th one, let me go. The first time I came back, night they were looking for talent night stuff mm-hmm. and um keith chang kevin lau um uh robert domingo uh who else uh ryan holt like there, there are a, a bunch of folks who were going to do the haka for mm-hmm. the talent show and somehow i think it was, it was on facebook or something like that they were saying oh anybody want to join us or whatever and i like oh yeah like this sounds like fun. Like, oh, okay, talent. Yeah, performance. Yeah, shit. I'm, you know, I'm ready. Yeah. Let me, let me go. Before I even saw my family, I was like, okay, I got to go here for for rehearsal. I learned the haka with them, and it was so much fun. Like, all of a sudden, I realized, oh, the man, the mana came out. It was so oh, yeah. awesome. It's such a great time. And then we performed it for talent night. I mean, it was such such a blast. Like, I had a blast, and I was like, why the hell did I miss? five, 10 and 15, you know, it's not like I'm reliving my high school experience. It's not that it's, I'm coming at it from an older perspective where I'm looking at these folks and I'm going, you know what? I'm almost saddened that I didn't spend more time with some of these folks while in school Yeah, because they're awesome people. I'm coming back every reunion. Yeah. What are your feelings about turning 50? All right. Age age has never been a big like thing for me, and I always feel mm-hmm. like I'm younger than I am. Mm-hmm. I, I I always joke that in the acting world, like when you're in your twenties, there's about a two hundred of us, maybe a thousand, right? It could be a huge number of, of people in their twenties, mm-hmm. and then you get in your thirties, and that number drops by a half. And you get in your 40s, that number drops by another half. When you get in your 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Then you're kind of like one of 10, 
maybe. <laughs> There's more like a need for that 70 year old Asian guy, right? Like they don't have, who do you know? Who do you know off the top of your head that could do it, right? There's not that many guys. So eventually the older I get and the longer I stay in this, the, the more like I will be the one of three people who you have to hire because <laughs> there's nobody else. You've, well, you've lasted that long. You know, I want to like take a picture of myself and go, this is 50. Like, I, do I look it? I you look so, good. Man. I mean, you, you don't look any anywhere near 50. I'd say I, I'd, I'd buy it. I'd buy yeah. it. That's because I don't eat vegetables. <laughs> no vegetables. It's a, it's a, uh, no vegetable diet. Blended in a smoothie. It's a blended in a smoothie. Yeah. <laughs> I um, hate vegetables. Like, like, hate them. A, like a boiled vegetable in a stew that the carrot or the potato. A anything. Anything. What about processed vegetables like ketchup? Yeah, but that's tomatoes. That's a fruit, right? So technically, yeah. Oh, so you I, get me on a technicality yeah. there, but okay, yeah. I'll give you that. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm okay. I'm okay with mustard and ketchup, but for right. I mean, I I hate them. For about six months, I was on a. It was an all meat diet, and it, all meat, nothing else, literally nothing else, and as long as I had my three meals, I ate when I was hungry. Mm -hmm. I was fine. Mm -hmm. And then, and then it got, it got me screwed up at some point because I just missed my sweets and that was it. What kind of uh, sweets are your go-tos? My custard pie, my pumpkin pie, my dobash cake. Oh, that, yeah. They're like, I love that stuff. Right? So now when I'm home, I make sure I go and get one. I got to get a pie. I will have easily go to Leonard's Malasadas. I have to. And Shimazu Shave Ice, which mm. used to be BNS, which I used to go to all the time after school. Okay. Um, so I have to go to like those places. Once I go to those places, I'm good. At our age, do you have a health routine? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm the laziest. <laughs> and I know that I'm like, I'm not going to be in a movie with my shirt off and like that's not who i am maybe there's like character roles maybe i can play the the dad bod guys you know i don't really stress about those things but i do stress about like eating healthy sag after strike sag after yeah, yeah yeah how's that going with you you know for me i'm lucky because i do a lot of audiobooks and audiobooks even though they're covered under the sag after contract audiobooks have sort of been that's a different contract and yeah. so we're still allowed to be able to do that we're allowed to do uh commercials and, and there are certain uh, movies and uh productions that go on that have been granted an interim agreement where that they've agreed to all the things that sag after wants and they say okay that's fine and then they were allowed to use union actors so there's a few of those going on uh-huh you know, the unions negotiate with different production companies. Mm -hmm. And so if it's television and film, they deal with the AMPTP, who are 350 product, you know, producers. Although most people just recognize the seven or eight who are the main ones, like Disney and uh, Sony, Amazon, Apple, all those big names, Universal, Paramount. Those are the ones who are really in control. 
all the rest are very small and and not as large those names that you were mentioning sounded to me like production companies but also streaming services so how yeah. has that been impacting i i understand that that it's changed the the financial um landscape a little bit yeah and you know, for me, and, and again, this, this is like, this is all of the stuff that I've read or heard about yeah. or sort of like sure. has been, you know, all my opinion on all these things. Sure. Um, in, in 1980, which was the last uh, time SAG-AFTRA went on strike, mm -hmm. they negotiated a whole new contract that dealt with residual payments, royalty mm -hmm. payments, dealt yep. with... Um, base compensation how much the the lowest minimum that you were going to pay somebody to be on sure. on a set you know pension and health distribution and all that kind of stuff and because at that point in time they were like look there's dvds there's um reruns on television there's syndication and labor should receive some money for those things when it keeps playing on and on and on mm -hmm. and so that contract was was huge and that's what we've been sort of working with since. So in 1980, right? So we've had maybe every three years when the contract expires, they might get, oh, okay, we're going to raise it by a couple of percentage points. Oh, we'll, we'll raise the base minimum here and there and there. Mm -hmm. So over the years, we've only been dealing with that 1980 contract. And all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, they said, hey, we're going to do these, we're going to start going into streaming, but we're not sure it's going to work. And so we're going to ask for, some, you know, concession, some sort of like, like help, like, don't, you know, we can't, we can't pay what the big ABC and CBS and NBC are paying because we don't have that kind of reach where subscription base is going to be different. So we want a new media agreement. So maybe the residuals are a little smaller maybe points are a little, a little smaller and we agreed. And then it became this huge behemoth. And so now streaming is now making a ton of money. All of these studios and all of these other companies want to go into streaming. Mm -hmm. And we're still getting the pennies that were put in that new media agreement as if it was a new technology. So SAG-AFTRA has come and said, look, now that our contract is up and we're up for sort of renegotiation, we want to, we want to sort of break that and make a whole new contract. One that deals with streaming, one that deals with revenue sharing, one that deals with AI and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. And to this point, the AMPTP says, no, we, we reject. We're not even going to talk about certain things. We're just we're going to flat out refuse to negotiate on any aspect of these things. And so we go, well, if that's the case, then we have to strike. No one wants to go on strike. No one wants to stop working. We love work. They just want to do small little increments. And by the by the time if we let that happen, our job and our labor force would just be useless. Because mm -hmm. at that point, they're going to do use generate generative AI to increase everything. They're going to um basically what what the AMPTP says is, oh, we want to hire a background actor, a union actor for one day, scan their body and likeness, and then pay them, you know, a couple hundred dollars or whatever. And for the rest of time, they are able to use that for group scenes in movies or at any time. And so all of a sudden you're kind of going, well, the background actor no longer has work anymore. They're not going to be, how are they going to make a living? 
So that's what we're trying to really protect is that kind of foolishness. We're we're ready to negotiate on mm -hmm. certain terms and certain pricing and, and all that. But if they don't want to talk about it, it's kind of hard to negotiate anything. So yeah, wow, that's um there's so many levels, you know, layers there. Back in the day, the idea was that if you were to get a guest spot on a, you know, a show on ABC. Mm -hmm. Right. And that they would have reruns of that show yeah. or it would go into syndication when they put it on basic cable or you would have DVD releases or you would um, have other streams of revenue. Mm -hmm. I would get a portion of that and the percentages would drop over the years, but I would still get a portion of that. You could make a pretty good living doing one or two guest spots on a show and you would get the incremental residuals for years after that would help you make a career and help you keep living. So mm -hmm. now instead of all of that, that residual money that you would get that you would use to live on, it's now not even like 2% of it. So it becomes a such a small um, amount of money. Thankfully, in the movies I did in the in the mid 90s or TV shows that I have in the mid 90s, I still get money from them. Mm -hmm. And and these are not shows that really air anywhere or even on streaming, but they just exist. They exist, whether it's in foreign countries, internationally or whatnot. So I still get a couple of hundred dollars for a show I did in 1994. Hmm. Yet a show that I did on ABC only three years ago, I got 87 cents. You know, so there's a there's a huge, huge difference. That's, you know, I heard a lot about that. I remember listening, seeing a spot on a news channel interviewing a woman who was in Orange is the New Black. Yeah, the show I was on. Yeah. Okay. And she gave the example of, what was it? 27. It was something. It $27. Was, yeah. For, or, or for having been in like three or four seasons. Check. That one specifically, though, I do have to say, you know, that's common mm -hmm. for foreign. That's international, international residuals. And so that's always a little tinier than it would be for domestic ones. Okay. But still, she had been on. I don't know, 20, 30 episodes of stuff. I've been on nine, right? Okay. So when I look at my uh, international foreign residuals, it's pretty small. It's about $7, maybe $6. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm used to seeing that small number on, on mm -hmm. those things. I don't know what that would have been if that show had been on CBS. Mm -hmm. You know, would that foreign rights, the foreign residuals be huge? I don't know. I don't know. Either way, it's small. And the show was really, really popular. Not something that was just sort of like, oh yeah, one season and done. It's pretty embarrassing mm -hmm. that the studios are are paying its labor that kind of money for its residual payments. Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking as non-actors, you know, looking from the outside, think about the industry. The only examples that come to mind are like, you know, um, Sandra, the big stars. Yeah. yeah. And, and millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation. And I'm wondering, how is it that actors like that are able to make so much? And there's so many that uh, make far less. Most of those big stars have different contracts that are negotiated by their high-level agents. So whether they're getting money in the back end when the movie is a success, or whether they're getting a big upfront deal, or whether they come in as producers themselves, mm -hmm. so they're taking some of the risk as well. It depends, right? 
But when you look at the union as a whole, and there's 160,000 people in the union, 89% don't make over $26,000. So, you know, they can't even meet the threshold for union health insurance. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there who, who this is a career for us. We're trying to make a living doing this. I mean, you know, for, for 30 years, you know, I had numerous jobs, but you know, there's a lot of folks out there who don't, who aren't fortunate enough to have that. It sort of has you and you try to figure out whatever you can do to make it work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is just, you know, the right place, right time, or you have the right mentors around you, the right representatives helping you with your career, the right coaching, whatever it is. But you get a little taste of success and you go, wow, I think I can continue to do this. And it's a numbers game and you just keep trying and you hope you have the numbers on your side. There were, there were 30 asks that the Screen Actors Guild, uh, you know, sag after had. Mm -hmm. And um, many of them were dealing with casting. Some were dealing with pension and health. Some were just dealing with raising a base minimum. Some were dealing with AI. There are so many things that are, that are you know, part of the ask. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of those are going to eventually be in a final contract. I mean, you know, I look at it as like, we're, we're the labor force, we're the employees, mm -hmm. and they are the people who are selling our labor. Pay the writers, pay the actors, pay your labor That's force. Right. That's right. What's in store for you over the next 10 or 20 years? Right. There are some projects that I've been auditioning for and that, you know, I've crossed my fingers and I'm like, oh man, I, I hope I get this one. Cause this is the kind of, you kind of wait as an actor for that one thing that puts you over the, over the hill a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. And those things I always feel are happening any day now. Mm -hmm. It really is like, especially coming here in, to LA um, with the kinds of projects that I've gotten recently. Like I go, is this the one that's going to, open the door is that the one that's going to take me there is that the one that's going to fulfill me creatively and and so i don't i don't know i'm 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 open for the opportunity and mm -hmm. i hope and i put forth good vibes that it's right around the corner like i i want to see my son grow up i want to see my son hit success you know and, and whatever he wants to do in his life and and follows through with that and I, I see myself being a lot more anchored to either the West Coast or to Hawaii. Like I don't, I don't see myself going back to New York. I have to be connected to Hawaii in some way when I get older. I miss it. And I didn't feel that way when I was in my 20s. I was like, no, nah, I want to get off the rock. I'm not homesick at all. And now as I get older, I go, oh, you know, every time I go home, it's harder for me to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I yearn for that kind of thing. And every time I get like a role for a Hawaiian person, I get to portray somebody who is my culture. I get to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's nothing that pisses me off more than when I see like Hawaiian movies told by people who are not Hawaiian, Hawaiian roles and it's people not Hawaiian. And it drives me insane. Pixar did a very short film that played at the beginning of some of these things called Lava. Have you seen I that? I love one? Lava. That I, I adore. When I saw that, this is how you tell the story like this, using Hawaiian music. I was like, yeah.
I actually did kind of get a little little misty eyed to watching that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Great talking to you, Kyle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man, for doing this. This is some some great stuff you're doing. I've I've already listened to Todd and Steve Lundy's and that was the first the first weekend. I was like, oh, where are the rest? Dude, come on. I know you did a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> right, Cuck, man. You take care. All right, brother. Take care. All, All right. right. Bye. I hope you liked this episode of Primetime 89. I'd like to thank our guest for taking the time to talk story with us. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped put this together. Jamie Barboza and Nicole Barboza Yoshimitsu. Wendy Brown and Kalia Huaro, Drake and Dana Kao. And a special thank you to Drez, Dwayne Andres for the music, and Elizabeth Matson with production and editing. I'm your host, David Matson. Be sure to like us and follow us at Primetime 89 Hawaii, where you can see photos of our guests and their stories. And subscribe to get the latest updates and news of upcoming episodes. And join us again with another classmate on Primetime 89.